0: Welcome to The Purpose Edge, where we explore interesting career and life stories to help you live a life of greater meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. And a reminder that at the end of the podcast, I'll add some extra thoughts around the purpose themes that have been raised in our conversation. I'm pleased to say that my guest today is Michael Lupi, who is a Gen Y millennial. Is that right, Michael? I've got that right? That's correct. Okay. And I point this out because not only do we need diversity of stories on my show. Um, His career is still unfolding, and I found his background and journey interesting, and I'm sure you will too. So, a formal welcome to the show, Michael.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, Phil. It's great to be here.
0: Excellent. So, you were telling me about your parents, and I I found this interesting because sometimes when we see what our parents do, we go, yes, I want to do that too, or we react against it and say, I want to get as far away from what they're doing as possible. Uh, Which way did you, which direction did you go in?
1: Uh, I think I went that apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I think that I I was been really inspired and I don't know my life has really been driven a lot by the the decisions that my parents made. Um, and they their work was really pivotal. I think in driving corporate social responsibility in Australia, and um, what I do has I, I look at it as an extent of the work that they did. So, so, in a lot so ways, what was
0: their what was their occupation when you were younger what what was your understanding of their occupation
1: My parents were CSR consultants is how I would put it
0: All right. um and CSR for anyone who's not using it every day means
1: corporate social responsibility Yep um yeah they they worked in corporate social responsibility but that what they would describe in their narrative of their lives were they were social workers They both started off as social workers in the 70s Um, and were there working with people, with people and communities um, to support them uh, at a time when social work really was, as a degree, quite innovative and pioneering, and there's a lot of new concepts that were coming in, Um, but as they went over throughout their lives, they shifted, I guess, at at a certain point, and went from working directly with individuals and communities to working with businesses to support and develop and create programs um, to address social and environmental issues in the world and in Australia in particular.
0: And why do you think they made that change? Is that a natural thing or a, a sort of effort they wanted to influence it on a different level?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I'd have to I'd have to ask them, but I think in part it was because there was a, a, a scale that could be achieved um, and it's a new thing and uh, they were kind of the first ones to do it in Australia. There was a new... Appetite that was growing in the the nineties that businesses understood that they needed a social license to operate that they needed to be doing something different, um, and they were well placed, I think, to, um, yeah, to deliver that and to create these programs and use and bridge that gap between the social sector and the corporate sector.
0: And uh, you did mention, I think, when you were eleven years old, you were first, I think, became aware of what they were doing. Is that have I got that right?
1: <laughs> yeah what I just you asked that question about what like did you go close or did you go far away from what your parents did i um i, I think about this story sometimes i actually i remember first learning about the idea of social capital as about a 10 or 11 year old and, you know i was in the car with my dad driving to you know play basketball as a child and he would' go on these drives and he'd tell me about his work and i remember him telling me describing the different fortunes capital and what social capital is but also how to measure it and i i can still remember clearly the example he gave about how how you can raise money can you raise two thousand dollars within 24 hours for a sick child as a form of measuring social capital um so i just grew up with concepts and ideas like that and it was a real shock to me when i got to university studying communications and sort of social studies that this was a, a university this was one of the first university sort of topics that we dove into i kind of thought why is this you learning this at uni that's not that's not it that's nothing new that i've known these ideas and concepts my whole life so for those reasons i'm never like surprised that i am where i am in my career um yeah with influences like i had with my parents starting positive outcomes um in the late 1990s early 2000s it's not a surprise i'm here today
0: so he must've been a really good communicator, given that you were able to understand that. Yeah, my
1: dad was a great communicator. He always uh, knew the power of storytelling. Um, although tongue in cheek, we would always had a saying in my family, uh, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that in a work context that ever really came through, but yeah, he was a great communicator. My, my parents uh, ran a business together, um, you know, this this CSR consultancy, Positive Outcomes. Um, and they were that, that dynamic duo of my dad was a communicator and my mum was there with doing the detailed reporting behind it, getting into the numbers. Um, so it really takes a bit, I think, to, to be effective in your work. It takes that sort of narrative, that big picture storytelling as well as that detail that comes
0: behind it. Hmm. So it sounds like they had that perfect complement of the creative, expansive marketing uh, skills maybe on your dad's side and the business operations and just getting things working, moving on your mother's side. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's really, that's really right. I um I like to think that myself, I have a bit, a mix of both of those. Um, but I would say I'm probably there on the narrative storytelling um, you know big picture bringing people along on the journey side much more than
0: the yeah that's where i feel most naturally comfortable great i want to delve maybe more into that relationship that they had in their business in a moment but you've just made me think of a book by i think it's thomas wolf called bonfire of the vanities i don't know if it's one you've ever read michael but uh, it's set in new york and this young girl her father is a bond trader and no one really understands what a bond trader is you know especially when you're a young young kid and she just breaks down one day and says look all my friends you know their dads are are bakers they're real estate agents it was very tangible and she just could not uh, she was so upset because she couldn't explain to any other kids what her dad did um so i'm wondering how would you explain to your friends what your parents did at that age i mean
1: that's a good question i I think I used to just say that they're consultants, um, which is a really you know, there's some quick ways to shut down a conversation. Um, <laughs> tell someone you work, tell someone you work in insurance, or to say you're a consultant. I think so. Um, I'm not sure. I think I would say that they developed um, social programs. They, which is what they did. They were, they were. So I would say they were social workers. Actually, that's probably another truth that I would put in there. Again, it's the same. In my life, it was—it's always been easy to describe what I've done when I worked in the community sector. You say you work for a charity, and people not along—they get it, and they always say that's so great. Yep. Now, as I've um, shifted over the years into the corporate space and in working into the shared value and purpose space, um, it's a—the uh, conversations are a lot shorter. I think when you're describing what you do, people's eyes glaze over almost instantly.
0: Yep. Okay. Excellent. Um, so you're you're in the insurance sector now. And again, we'll come back to that a little bit later. But did you, so you said you went to university and you found this course, which reflected what you've been brought up learning. And it sounded like it was the right thing for you. But did you ever question at the time, well, is that the right thing or should I go in a, a different direction?
1: Uh, I think I knew what I was naturally good at. Um, or what i felt comfortable doing at least and communicating has always sort of been that thing for me so i studied communications um, and i focused on sort of social and political science which is also just interesting for me so it i didn't I didn't know i didn't have a five-year plan I still don't um, but i knew that these were the things that i liked to do but what i kind of knew i didn't want to do was the other part of my parents uh, not just my parents, it's in my family, and my grandparents, there's like, you know, Italian immigrants to Australia, um, this hard work work ethic, but also entrepreneurial spirit. I kind of knew that I have the, the thinking and the spirit, but not the drive. I like working within a structure. So I was happy to, I knew the space I wanted to work in, but what I didn't take from my parents was their entrepreneurial drive. And that's interestingly what my brother has taken on. He runs multiple businesses and um, is a storyteller in his own way as a musician, um, but we have fallen in two sides of the same tree. The apple hasn't gone far, but um, for me, I knew it was the purpose side that I really aligned that I would grab grab onto rather than, um, you know, wanting to motivate myself to draw, create my own business, drive it forward. I like working in that structure of... Uh, of teammates, um, of colleagues and sort of being driven by working in a group rather than just by myself.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> that's, um, that's really interesting that you had the different personality types within your sibling group there. And therefore your parents, how did their careers play out? Did they, were they in this entrepreneurial running their own business consultancy forever until retirement or did they take a different path at some stage?
1: Uh well, they started this consultancy in the probably early 2000s and ran it for about 15 years, 10 to 15 years maybe, in different formats. I think um, they managed to sell their business um, at one stage in about 2008 and then worked for the company they sold it to for a number of years. Um, but then they they left at that point and I think went overseas for a while and did some international volunteering for a number of years, um, and took different sort of jobs, but they always sort of came back to social impact consulting. Um, just as they got older towards their retirement, they were more, um, discerning. They sort of had a kind of, they did a semi-retirement for a number of years as, as we called it, because they did international volunteering stints where they, went to Vietnam for a number of years and then Nepal for a year or so as well, helping to build micro-entrepreneurs. And they really shifted a lot as well into the um, social enterprise space and they helped set up some social enterprises and always that intersection between business and community um, with tangible community benefit really being at the heart of it. Um, I think that's where they went. They always did that. But that's also interestingly how I describe what I do and what I care about. Um, so I'm not sure if I'm putting my framing into what they did or whether they've given me the framing in which I use in my career
0: and you mentioned to me beforehand your father passed away two years ago so how was um how was that process for you to deal with
1: oh it was it was sad to lose my dad he was he just turned 70 when he passed away um but as a interesting you know you take you look at your parents as giants or you you rebel and you you say this is what I'm not going to do uh, I my my life and my family were really lucky to have an engaged dad who cared about us and was always teaching us and he taught us all how to deal with grief and loss and existence in his journey with cancer he was the one who held us together he was the one who was spiritually, okay with what was going on. Um, So even in profound loss, we learned a lot and it was a really, you know, in a lot of ways, a really special and lucky time for us to be able to care for him towards Mm. the end of his life.
0: And are there any specific skills that you would have picked up from him?
1: I think understanding acceptance uh, was something that, and the practical tools that you do to deal with with loss that idea of meditation um but also how to tell the people that you love and you care about that they that you care about them and what it takes to sort of build lifelong friendships it's kind of one of those things that he was connected with his friends um until the very end and it, but it, it was work it was him calling his friends and connecting and sharing and being vulnerable that meant that he had so many people who loved him and were there with him at the end.
0: So it sounds like both your parents have been a really strong guiding light for you over, over your years.
1: Oh, definitely. And even now I, uh, still, still come to my mum for advice. She, in her retirement is as busy as ever. Uh, she has, she's a refugee advocate, uh, and does it from trying to influence the system and trying to sort of do refugee advocacy at a national scale as a national president of rural Australians for refugees. Um, But even down to the personal, um, she's spent countless hours over the summer working with a a Tibetan refugee family who she's become the de facto grandmother for and teaching the mother English lessons as well as driving lessons and sort of being her support when she deals with um, Australia's complex social sector and Centrelink and things like that. Uh, so I go to her for advice on all sorts of things.
0: She sounds like, and I've got to say, I meet these people every now and then. She sounds like one of those unstoppable forces in the world. They're just going to power on no matter what and do good stuff.
1: No, well, that's hundred percent. Right. Um, but it's, and it's funny as a, as, as a adult children of, parent who don't stop um, I feel like sometimes my message is do less slow down um, don't overcommit. commit uh, but equally what what is what are the what are the other alternatives and what are what brings you joy and it's like that idea of purpose coming back to that I see it um, yeah I see it in my parents lived it and my mom still does this idea that that's what gets you out of bed and as I i say to her well, one is as i say to her do less she says well if i don't do it who is who will mm. do it and yeah. um it's really it's really you know i don't like to say inspiring but it's like really gives you that uh that framing and perspective to yeah to stand up and act and do things that uh, align to your values and you care about
0: it's a great point you raise because a lot of people and i've fallen into this trap personally in the past you're trying to do too much for too many people and you do it all badly but you so you can differentiate the drive the drive to do great stuff which you just outlined but it has to come with a, a separate component which is management of that drive and that probably comes down to self-awareness of are you really overcommitting committing and overstretching, and can you wind it back a bit so it sounds like you've learned a couple of lessons there but do you apply it yourself michael
1: I think I I think I apply it. Um, I've gotten better at doing it. Um, I think that's sort of part of being effective is knowing what you can deliver and what you can say, saying what you're going to be able to do, and then delivering it in the time frame that you say you're going to. I think that's being good as whether it be at your job or as a partner or as a friend. I think that's sort of that's a skill set that I still work on, but I have gotten better at. Um, but I. Th- now I work in i work at an insurer at Iag where our purpose is to make your world a safer place and i'm, a, I'm one step removed often from the communities in which we're working with and supporting but before i st- i worked at Iag i worked in the community sector and i worked with issues around homelessness and domestic violence disability and mental health and i think when you work so closely with these really you know traumatic And heavy issues, you do learn to put not a wall up is the wrong thing because there's someone has everyone has compassion and care and who choose it's a choice to work in these in these spaces. Um but there's for your own personal resilience, I feel like you need to draw this separation. And I think it's a skill that's maybe not talked about that a lot of people who work in this space have, which is to draw. The line and say I'm not going to take this home, or to put a little bit of a um, a lens over your work to say this is my job, and so I'm not going to let it affect me too much. I think it's it's hard to do, but this, a thick skin is something that you develop when you when you're dealing with really heavy and sad and traumatic
0: ideas and issues all the time. Mm. And as much as you say you can block it out, you can meditate, you can do all sorts of processes, I imagine there's a certain amount of stuff that you can't always block out completely. Is that true?
1: Uh, I think, yeah, I think it is hard to fully block it out. I'm also, as a as a parent now, I'm finding things that I could deal with on a, a more intellectual level are affecting me so much more emotionally now as i um as i look after a child as i put myself in the shoes of forward like projecting of what the life of my daughter will be like um i find that maybe that's the hardest thing sometimes whereas before when i could talk about statistics about domestic violence and talk about the experience as i had learned it it wasn't until i could put um yeah as as i could project what it means to be a woman in society um through the lens of my daughter that it sort of took an, a, an intellectual concept an idea of what is right and wrong i knew on one level it changes when you can feel it a little bit more closely um yeah i but at the same time you have to be able to block you have to if you don't want to burn out you have to be able to separate them and i've learned that the easy way and the hard way.
0: Mm. So I want to come back to your career in a moment and that journey, but we'll finish with the family. You went into your, your fatherhood side. Let's finish with the family. And you uh, noted that your nonna has a very good, is it Bolognese risotto recipe? Is that what it is?
1: Yes. Bolognese risotto. I didn't know that was I don't... a thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I just grew up eating it. I, uh, my, I didn't, my nonna lived by herself, and so when we'd go and visit, she lived in Brisbane and we grew up in Sydney. We'd, I didn't have that quintessential childhood experience of your nonna overfeeding you and um, you know, always having food on the table because we'd just go and visit her every few months or once or twice a year. Um, and as two growing boys, she never had enough food for us. So I never quite had the um, stereotypical Italian nonna experience. But what she did make without a fail every time we'd go and visit was Bolognese risotto. Which I think I've learned over the years, if you ask an Italian, in Italy, they would say that's as normal as anything because you have this sauce, you're going to use it in all types of different ways. But uh, I've never seen it on a rest- at a restaurant. Um, I'm not sure if I ever will. And I'm okay with that. It is quite a labor of love. So it's something that I only make nowadays myself once a year. Um, but if anyone's listening, wants to try something new, you just substitute a bit of the stock that you would use in your risotto recipe with bolognese, about 50-50, and stir away to your heart's content, and it tastes delicious.
0: That sounds like wonderful comfort food. Um, so you're, now, I don't know if this is on your mother or your father's side, this nonna but just coming back to the vocation of your parents and yourself, where were your grandparents at? What was their occupation or outlook on life?
1: Yeah, so on my dad's side, my my dad it was an Italian family, um, and so my grandparents, my nonno no nonno, were Italian immigrants uh, via Scotland. So it was kind of Australia was the second um, migration destination for the Loopy family. Um, they were they worked in delis, restaurants, and uh, they had a a green grocer for many years they brought one of the first greengrocers to open up in uh in brisbane um but they yeah so they were immigrant uh, immigrant family working hard my dad grew up grew up working in the shop every day that was what you did um or they'd go and work at the golf club where my dad was a caterer where my uh, no was a caterer My my aunt would tell the story how she was there to serve the food because that's what you did—you got a job and the whole family worked it. Um, But they were also, you know, there was social justice right through their lives. Manona volunteered at the Mater Hospital in Brisbane until her she was in her 80s. You know, decades of volunteering. Uh, I I once, as a about an eight-year-old, ten-year-old. I nominated her for Australian of the Year once for her the amount that she volunteered. Wow. Um but that was just what you do. You just give back to your community. Um, particularly as people who had, you know, relied on their community, relied on that sort of collectivism to get you through like not speak not really knowing people, having English as a second language. Um it's just what you did. And if you've been helped, you help others and you give back. If you're in a position there, you can. So that's always never, yeah, that's never been something that I've ever questioned. Uh, and it was, you know, the same same on my mum's side of the family in terms of just you give back. That's what you do.
0: I'm guessing your daughter then has, she has a long line of social justice warriors or volunteers and givers. So uh, she's under a bit of pressure there to, to live up to the hype.
1: She, she is. I say I come from a family of volunteers, um, but you know she will make her own way. But I'm sure we'll be at a few clean up Australia days as she grows up, just like I was.
0: And given the changes and issues that we seem to be facing in the world today, but I guess historically we've always faced big issues. That just those issues have changed over time. How optimistic are you for your? Daughter's outlook and the life she'll have ahead.
1: It's a really good question. Uh, I, I think easily I can answer that as I'm an optimist. I really believe in hope. Um, sometimes because what else do we have? I think what else do we have? But you know, I also have made my career working in that sort of change space whether it be individual behavior change, trying to change systems. And um, I find that there's this, you know, throughout history we've seen it, and even Australian history of the last 50, 70 years, it's two steps forward, one step back for any sort of progress. Um, But you know, progress we have, and I always get, I always find it amazing the there's this sort of inertia that comes with social change. Um, where it's you never think something's going to change, and then all of a sudden it, uh, perceptions ideas, the social norms t- tend to switch overnight um it always shocks me I think as someone who's quite progressive and um, you live in a in a world where you you think the world should be one way um and then it shocks me when the world catches up, maybe not always as fast as I would like personally, but um, yeah, I I think uh, that I have hope for the future. Uh, if just for young people, you know, if not if nothing else, the uh, the voice that I, I feel like the the youngest generations have found and continue to find um, is amazing.
0: Mm. And therefore, what I noticed also about your own career and your family, this being this a theme, is you're all very empowered to change and drive change. You're not sitting back helpsfully saying this, everything's wrong with the world. You seem to insert yourself into the equation. So let's now shift to your current role, which is in social sustainability for an insurance company that you mentioned a moment ago. What does that role mean? What do you actually do?
1: So my current role is specialist disaster resilience at IAG. um, And that is all around driving individual preparedness from being prepared for natural disasters, as well as supporting to communities to recover from natural disasters. So as an insurer, we see firsthand the impacts of climate change. And so we have a big focus on addressing, reducing climate change, but also noting that clim- the climate has already changed and it's affecting communities Across, across Australia and New Zealand. So we have a role to both support communities that have been impacted, but also more likely to be impacted by natural disasters and natural hazards um, in the future because of the changing climate. And so a big part of what I do is around making people aware of their risks and working in this sort of behavior change model that there is changing risk. How do you get uh, individuals and communities to be aware of their risk uh, and to take action to reduce their risk, as well as being there with them when something does go wrong and something does happen to support in their recovery. And recovery, we know, is a long journey. It's not something that you just go and do, hey, this happened, I'm, I'm okay a few months later. Recovery journey takes many, many years. Uh, and so as an insurer, we have a role to mm-hmm. our customers, but also the wider community in which we operate to to be there to support them
0: and to what extent uh do you have to get out there in the community when you're doing this versus coordinating resources behind the scene what what does that profile of your work look like
1: i think we work in partnerships so another way that i look at my work is I'm, i work in partnerships because uh we have a role in this in a wider system um we i am in community and' what I'd probably like to do it more, but I also know that um where I can be most effective is working with partners who do get there on the ground, or even with some partners that I work with like Give It, um, their role is to support other organizations that are there on the ground. So I've always thought about I've always thought about that idea of how do you do be the most effective that you can be. Um, and I think that scale is really important and sometimes you need to, yeah, trading off scale versus, versus uh, impact or scale versus deep connection. And I think, um, you know, at IAG, we do it really well being there for our customers and for communities when something goes wrong. But in order to achieve change at a large level, it's also about working at scale. and you utilizing um, power of our brand and the scale of our business and the scale of operations to support communities as well.
0: Right. And you'd be working with partners like the Red Cross as well in, in that process?
1: Yeah, we work really closely with the Australian Red Cross. We have a 10-year partnership with the Australian Red Cross. Um, with give it as well as partners like uh, mental health partners like Lifeline um, and emergency services partners. We have a partnership with the state emergency service in South Australia, um, where it's about, again, supporting communities to be prepared and to take action to reduce their risk. Um, but also, you know, our partnerships. What I love and what, how I think partnerships should be, um, and I have found this in my career and all partnerships that I've worked in, about a collaboration. I mean, what are those things you're trying to do together? How do you identify what you your joint purpose? And then you work out what to do, having first agreed that you're it makes sense work together. So I mean that's what we do at IAG, but also a skill set that I've used throughout my career. And again, probably part of the reason why I've enjoyed working at IAG so much is because uh, it brings skills that I've built and uh, wanted to develop further into
0: into practice. So what do you think, and I'm not talking about IAG specifically here, just talking more generally about the corporate sector and other insurers what do they typically tend to get wrong when they're going in and working with communities, whether it's in partnership or directly?
1: What do they get wrong? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've always believed the business can be a vehicle for good, um, but not in an, and I don't mean that in an naive, like I've drunk the the Kool-Aid PR type of way. I think it comes from, we talk about um, talking about my family and how I grew up. I saw firsthand how people who started their careers as social workers. So you know, really undeniably, good people can work with the biggest companies in Australia to drive social good. Um, so I think, what do what do what does corporate Australia get right? I think if you look past any motives, at the end of the day, we have smart people who understand the complex challenges facing disadvantaged groups, and how to engage them meaningfully and respectfully who are also given license and access to big capital you are going to be a force for good Um, but I that's what I think you know corporate Australia can get right I think in terms of what you can get wrong addressing systemic challenges that are bigger than what one role of of what a single business or even a sector can play in can address and solve is really hard i think mm-hmm. that's like you know that law of unintended consequences i think that's where things can go wrong um and i another thought i've sort of had around like what you need to be successful in and this i learned this in community development but i think it's equally as important in um i in in my work in the corporate sector it's kind of like you can only go as as the people that you're trying to help. that's uh, something I learned. Um, but I think that also comes through in terms of influencing and engaging. Uh, you know you it's that idea that you are part of a bigger system um, and that we as insurers or as a corporate work in the as a, a voice for business and that can drive social outcomes. You can't do that without working with community organizations and with communities. Equally, the role of government in working in on complex social issues, I think is critical. I don't think you can do it instead of or without government. I think it's about how do communities, business sector, corporate business and corporate sector, the government, community organizations, communities themselves work all together to address the biggest social and environmental issues of a day that's where it works and when it gets it wrong is when not all players are on the same page or even communicating at all
0: Hmm. well that's a great great answer to what was probably a tricky question as well and i think as you know we could sit here and talk about business and society all day but our listeners might not want to hear our whole discussion so i want to move now into the phase of what did you do between uh, school and ending up at in your current role, you mentioned you went into the social sector. But what what was that? What did that journey look like? How many components were there in it?
1: Many components. They were deeply complex and challenging. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I was at uni and I knew I wanted to work in that intersection between business and community. I, I always knew that but I, I kind of also knew that I wanted some skin in the game. You know, like I feel like, again, if you're going to work to make the world a better place and work on sort of, you know, at the scale that I was talking about before, you also need to understand what, what it means to work with communities and what it means to work with individuals who might need support. Um, so I kind of, I thought it was a dream job out of uni. I, I landed a, I saw it. I was sitting for my final exams at uni, and I saw this job, and it was for corporate partnerships, um, for a charity, for the Defence and Deport Society in New South Wales. So I went for it, and it was fantastic. And I was in the fundraising team, um, working with corporate partners, working on events, um, working with our a lot of the Vinnies programs, including um, homelessness shelters, domestic violence refuges. Um, as well and disability services Uh, and I worked at Vinnie's for a number of years but in a range of ways so I was there on the partnership side again um, kind of the other side of where I work now Um, but when the opportunity came to work directly with individuals with people with disabilities and mental health issues I jumped at it and I thought it was like you know a pivotal intentional part of my career that I wanted to build um, so, and I did that for a number of years. So I worked, it was a pre, it was a program called Ability Link, which was a precursor to the NDIS. Um, and it was my opportunity to get some experience working in community development. Working in community development was eye-opening and uh, integral into building that foundations of where I could go in my career and the skills, the raw skills that
0: I thought would make me a uh, yeah, make me good at my job. Um, so the leaders of the future will have experience in corporate world, in the social sector, and in government. So you've ticked two of those boxes. Is there a government role awaiting you somewhere, Michael? Who knows? I mean, change
1: is always so scary sometimes. Even as someone who works in behaviour change, uh, I'm I'm not really sure. I I never... Yeah it's definitely that I have I have heard that said before and I have heard thought of it before but um, I'm not really sure I don't know yeah it's I I know two in, I know two sectors pretty well but I don't know if I know the government sector that well but you never no, seen
0: them I think it was Professor Peter Shergold who might have I, I originally heard say that and it's uh I think it's come up in in leadership conversation and, and it makes sense given what you said you identified that the three sectors working together is when it gets um when you can get powerful outcomes
1: yeah it's so true
0: mm. so now we're going to go uh into uh some rapid fire questions soon but just before that given you're you're a young uh, relatively new parent um you're holding down a, a corporate job i'm sure you've got a busy life how do you just generally navigate work-life balance what's your secret When do you have a secret <laughs> do you not navigate it well
1: ah uh, i look i think i'm really lucky that i work at an employer that really values that work-life balance um you know i think as much as there's pressures to do well in, in any job um I had it in the social sector and I definitely have it at IAG where they really value what it means to work nine to five um, and what it means to make sure that you have that balance. And I've always had leaders that encourage me to do the same thing. Um, So I think the workplace culture is so important. Uh, And then the other thing is finding what fills your cup. That's what I, you know, whether I've learned that from my parents or just my own experiences, what gives me energy, and how do I how do I do that? Um, one of those things that for me is social basketball, playing mixed basketball, uh, um, exercise and socialisation at the same time. It's a great it's a great winning combo. Plus, I'm really
0: tall, so that also helps. It <laughs> does help. Uh, excellent. So, uh, are there any other role models looking beyond your your family realm? Are there any other key role models that you've taken note of in your journey?
1: i've I think the leaders I've had throughout my career um, have been big role models. I've learned different things from a lot of them. i'm I'm lucky i I consider myself lucky to work in industries and have studied in sectors where it's often you know female dominated in the leadership structures, um or, Dominated is probably the wrong word. There have been a, a significant presence of female leaders in the structures and organizations I've worked in. So I'm really lucky to have learned what empathetic, caring, um, strong leadership looks like from a range of different places and including uh, a lot of female leaders in my life. But yeah, it's people I've worked with, uh, people I've worked with, people, friends who are effective and good at what they do and whether it's creative endeavors or just in their own careers that also
0: really inspires me as well right so we've got our last uh three questions quite rapid fire that i've asked people just to give their top of the mind answers to these the first one is what does if you had to sum it up what does purpose mean for you personally uh,
1: for me purpose means working within your values to do something that leaves the world a better place
0: that's very concise did you have that pre-planned or did you just come up with that on the spot
1: i i didn't have it pre-planned but it's probably a few phrases that i say in my life like merge together
0: okay excellent question two of the three what are you most looking forward to from here
1: Oh, a holiday to Bali in May. <laughs> that sounds pretty um, good. No, look. Beside, from a from a purpose perspective, and from a, I, yeah, I'm looking forward to. We talked about the 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 three sort of three of the pillars of our world, community, government, and business sector, working in lockstep. Uh, I'm excited to see that more, and I think things that once sat on the periphery um, are much more mainstream and integrated uh, in a whole range of different ways. Um, you know, From the national public discourse to how businesses operate and also the maturity in which uh, non-profits in the community sector works more generally. So I'm really excited by those things working together.
0: Wow, excellent and the last question and I hope this is the easier one If someone was, say, where you were uh, a few years ago, coming out of university, wanting to make an impact, do you have a a key piece of advice? I think it's come through in our conversation so far, but what would your key piece of advice be for someone just going, well, here I am, where do I go? What do I do if I really want to make an impact in the world? Yeah.
1: I mean, listen to this podcast, first of all, all the episodes with all the great guests. I definitely say that, but also it's a journey that see where it takes you. Um, That's what I would say. And having skin in the game, if you want to work in the space, uh, you want to work with a particular community or, or if you don't know which community you want to work with or what you want to do, but you want to, you know, how you want to do it, go in and do it. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's the least insightful thing I've said all day. Um, but yeah, it's like it's a, a winding, weird spider web of a journey of a career. I think our careers are like they're not they're not linear. Uh, and so, getting out there and just doing what you like, and knowing that it might take a few jobs to get there. What? How do you, how can you look at? It? I've said I said this to my niece the other day. How can you look at not what you see a job that you want, but you're not qualified for it. How do you look at the jobs you need to do to get that job? That's always been um, good advice that I was given that I've tried to pass on to others.
0: Well, that is a great tip there, that that one at the end um, alone. So, And I think what you're saying lines up with what some previous guests have said too, and it's that piece around sometimes you've just got to get out there and do stuff, and it could be the right stuff or it could make you realise what the right stuff is. But I love your point around looking at that ideal job and saying, what do I need to do? to get into that role. That's fantastic. So we're gonna include a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And Michael, um, for now, thanks for coming on for a chat and sharing your Purpose Edge with us.
1: Thanks so much, Phil. It was a great conversation as always. Uh, I hope I could add value to to your show, to anyone listening um, and to the world in general.
0: Yeah, no, I think there's been some great stuff that's come up, and uh, and just a reminder to listeners, there'll be a very short break here, but then I'll come back with a couple of observations. So hang in there for that. certainly great to get a Gen Y perspective from Michael and some key themes and learning from me. I'm going to put them into three different categories. Number one was this power of parental influence, their level of volunteering, social contribution, community engagement was very high. And this has come up in other interviews. If you've listened, for example, to the Holly Masters one, you would have heard that quite a bit. So perhaps there's something going on here between the guests I'm having on and the ethos of their parents. I love the fact that he learned about social impact from very early on, I think it was age seven, he said. So if you're a parent, take note, the kids are watching. Even if you're not a parent, you might be a role model for someone else's kids. And finally on this point, the fact that he nominated his nonna for Australian of the Year based on her volunteering when he was only age 10 is just purely priceless. Point number two. Michael seemed to figure out that his place was working in larger organisations or larger structures and having an influence through that means rather than setting up his own business or being entrepreneurial himself. So I find that that was interesting. And the third point, in his career he took the approach to get skin in the game. So he worked at um, St Vincent's or Vinnie's New South Wales as a stepping stone to get into the corporate role because he really wanted to have some of that practical hands-on experience under his belt when he went on to that next thing. I don't know about you, but I sense the excitement he gets from working at the intersection of business and community, regardless of which sector he's in. And the real takeaway, as you might have seen in the show title, is that focusing on the jobs you need to get the job that you want is really sound advice. So although Michael's perhaps mid-career I'm excited to stay in touch with him and see where he goes from here. If you've enjoyed this episode, please recommend it to people who you think would get value from it so we can help more people hone their purpose edge. And until next time, I'm Phil Preston. Bye for now.